This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. We talked last week about certain defining moments that we have in our life, and I was thinking about the children of Israel, and I was thinking about some of the defining moments that they have. And one of the things that I've always thought about and never really looked at until this week was the two bodies of rivers that they crossed when they left bondage and moved into the promised land. If you look at a map, it shows them crossing the the uh, the Red Sea, and uh, it was a mon- monumentous event, and God protected them, and the winds blew all night, and the sea was parted, and they went off on dry land, and they moved into this wilderness area. God had originally intended on taking them directly into the promised land, but because of their doubt and their fear and their desire to go back to how it was under bondage when hard times hit, they wandered around for 40 years and uh, until an entire generation died. And then if you'll trace their lineage, then you go down into the peninsula and they're, they're kind of wandering around, sometimes looks like in a circle. Finally, they make themselves into the promised land. They head up into I- to Israel on the east side of the Jordan River. And just as they're getting ready to go into the promised land, God dries up the Jordan River. Do you remember that story? When all of a sudden that they can't cross and the priests go out first and the, the, the river just is down around their ankles and at the very end they, they put these 12 stones that symbolize this great event that took place and the children of Israel are, who had been wandering around for 40 years now crossed over into the promised land, but not all of them, not all of them, not all 12 tribes crossed over. There was a couple tribes that didn't want to. I mean, in in the promised land was everything God had given them. And yes, it was difficult. Yes, they would have to defeat the armies that were there and the kingdoms that were there. But God was going to work that out miraculously like he did with with Jericho. But if they fell on their, their own desires, it would be a defeat like AI, if you remember the story in Judges. But there were some of them that said, I'm okay here. I'm okay, not what God has provided for me. But I'm okay in an area that was better than I came from, but not as good as my inheritance. And the same things happens to us often spiritually. We get saved and we're overwhelmed by this goodness and this glory of God. And it's just the most amazing thing that ever happened to us. And it permeates every area of our life. The first time our blinders come off and we see ourselves for who we are and what Christ has done for us and this mandate that he has and this joy that we feel that we go to work. And when we go to work, we're seeing these people, not as co-workers or even friends, but we're seeing these people that need to experience what I've experienced. And it's, it's an incredible time. Our family, when we, when we see them, that we're overwhelmed with the fact that they're lost. And, and in, in my spiritual experience, I ended up apologizing to almost everybody I knew for six months for everything that popped into my mind that I had done wrong. And, 
Could have taken a lot longer than six months, but I cut it short. And it was, it was, it was incredible. And we go to church, and wow, for the first time in church, it's not just a lecture with a bunch of music and people that had this kind of faint smile on their face, and how are you? Fine, and you? Fine, and, and all that kind of stuff. Instead, when we go to church, oh my goodness, there's saints here, there's other people who know Christ, and you know, you've known what I know now for so long, and, and you didn't insist that I listen to you, and then we're overwhelmed by what happens in church, and we're surprised that other people don't feel the same way. I mean, you've known Christ for 30 years. I've known Christ for three weeks, and I'm more pumped than you are. Why is that? Well, I used to be like you, but you'll get over that fervency in a little while, son. And we swore it would never happen, and it did, because familiarity breeds contempt. It's a true statement. I mean, it's the same way in, you know, in Mark chapter 6. These people grew up with Jesus in his hometown, and when he goes back and preaches the gospel to them, they rejected him. I mean, they knew his sinless life. He was the friend that never got in trouble. He was the guy, probably why they didn't like him, he was the guy that you could always trust and had this incredible wisdom far beyond his, his age. He was the son that was faithful to his mom and his dad. And Familiarity breeds contempt. Yeah, I've known the Lord a long time. In the very beginning, I was filled with awe and fear and just joy. And I was just, every time I would get ready to pray, I was just thinking, oh my gosh, I get an opportunity to pray to God himself. And, and I, I couldn't wait until those times where I could just get away and ask my heavenly father what it was like. And I've, now I've, I understand more because I understand that now the Holy Spirit is actually lives in me. And I understand that God chose me, not when I decided to make a relationship with him, but he chose me for the foundation of the world. Oh, how I love him more and on and on and on as our knowledge grows, but our intimacy begins to wane. How is that even possible? And it happens, I say this right, if this doesn't apply to you, and it's never happened to you, and you're in a constant trajectory, trajectory towards Christ, excuse me for speaking about things that don't apply. I'm speaking to people like me, people like the vast majority of Christians, people like the church in America. It just doesn't matter anymore. It used to be we picked up God's Word, and it was God's Word. And now it's like, did anybody see my Bible? I think you left it at church. Okay, well, I'll get to get it next Sunday. Really? Really? Now, I'm not anti-technology. You know, you open up the Word of God, and you feast over the pages, and you're, you're circling things, and you're underlining things, and you're writing notes and prayer requests. You can't do that on an app. It used to be incredible. And then, and then I don't know, in the old Rocky movies, and Rocky... Three, I guess it was. You know, Rocky won, he lost. Rocky two, he won. Rocky three, he's getting ready to fight Clubber Lang. Do you remember? Mr. T. And he was a brute. He was an animal. And, and Rocky goes, I'll take him in three. It's okay. Let me fight him. And Mickey, his trainer, realized what had happened to Rocky. And he told him this. He says, what has happened to you is the worst thing that can ever happen to a fighter. Well, what's that? He became civilized. Civilized. I'm okay with the way things are. And when, if you think about that, when, when familiarity breeds contempt, sometimes we become apathetic. I watched this in 
couples that are dating. A guy calls up a girl and he uh, wants to impress her. And he thinks he's dating outside of his league. In other words, I, you know, she's, I'm really surprised she said yes. And so she agrees and they go on their first date. And when they go on the first date, man, he is all manners. I mean, he is, he opens her car door. And that's kind of awkward because nobody ever opens my car door. But okay, thanks. And that's really polite. And he makes sure that he opens the door. And if you're sitting in a restaurant or a movie theater or something and somebody behind you is using profanity, he may turn around and say, hey, hey, my, uh, my girl's here. Just stop. He's really polite and wants to, whatever makes her happy and, and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, it's great. I mean, it's great. He's, he's showing honor. He's showing respect. He's showing that that person has value and worth because it had so much value and worth that I am devaluating what I want because I just want to give you what you want because I want this to be a special time for you so that you'll say yes when I ask you again. And so she does say yes. And she says yes, and she says yes, and she says yes, and then all of a sudden he gets a ring and gets on his knees, and somebody films it maybe, and he asks her to marry him, and and that's really great. And and then they end up getting married, and and then years pass, and and there's uh, there's no opening car doors anymore. There's no making sure that she's happy all the time. It becomes kind of a war zone sometimes. I have my needs, you have your needs, and and what's the deal here? And there's a compromise that takes place, and, and there's devaluation. And then I watch sometimes, you go on Facebook and you see these video clips of this 75-year-old man who is pulling out the chair for his wife as she sits down for dinner and everybody goes, oh, that's incredible. Well, why? Why? Because he's still doing that after all these years. But he supposedly loves her more. Wouldn't you do more than that? And Familiarity breeds content, and sometimes it breeds apathy. It breeds apathy towards the Lord. There was a time when I, I took everything to you in prayer, but now I just ask you to bless my efforts. I mean, I, I used to spend a lot of time planning our dates and planning the things we would do and, and wanting to work really hard, and, and now it's, hey, it don't really matter. We'll just sit down and, and watch television, or I'll order pizza because I've already won you. You know, you're already mine. I've already convinced you to marry me, so there's no need to impress you anymore. So therefore, I'll put forth the, the least amount of effort. And sometimes it's exactly the same way with the Lord. First part, you know, if a pastor says, hey, I need a volunteer to do this. First people raise their hands or people have been saved the least. The least. The youngest I do. Gosh, the youngest person here here is usually the busiest. I mean, now this person has four kids and you know working and all that kind of. I'll do that. I I want to be about the Lord's business. And 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 guys like my age who have known the Lord for so long, sometimes we're the laziest because familiarity breeds contempt. It breeds indifference. It breeds a lack of honor, respect. It breeds misplaced love. I'll miss church, but I won't miss golf. I'll. uh, I won't cheer about Jesus, but I'll cheer about my team if they're in the Super Bowl. And what happened? Did the love of Christ go cold? Is it, is it something that he has pulled away from? Is, is, is there something that he has done? Or is it maybe something that we have done? I've been asking the Lord week after week after week as we've been talking about revival, show me areas that we need to get rid of to bring revival. If revival or a fervent, vibrant relationship with the Lord is the 
is the standard. It's what we should be doing. Then, then obviously we're doing something to block that, Lord. So show me what it is. And here's what he showed me this week. And I was really surprised at how personal what I'm going to show you became. Because a lot of what, uh, a lot of, a lot of what I'm going to share with you today, the Lord had to deal with me. And it wasn't so much that I lost my love of Him, but I replaced sometimes that love of Him with doing things for Him. Understand the difference? There's one thing to love ministry for Him. It's another thing to love Him. And sometimes as pastors, we mesh those two together, but they're totally separate. Absolutely totally separate. If you have turned to the book of Revelation, I want you to look at uh, chapter 1. I want to set the scene for you here. John, of course, is in the spirit on the Lord's day. He is fellowshipping with the Lord through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And verse number 9, we'll pick up there in Revelation chapter 1. It says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was a prisoner there. He's probably close to 100 years of age, between 90 and 100. He's lived a a difficult life. Tradition says that at one time he was actually boiled in oil, yet survived. And they believe that that's why Jesus said that maybe he would not see death in the last chapter of John, but that's not what he meant at all. And verse 10 says that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and he heard behind him a loud voice as if a trumpet. Now, that means it's an arresting voice. It's something that startled him. It's not a loud voice like the roar of the wind, which starts kind of rumbling and then gets to a crescendo and kind of dies down. When you're talking about a trumpet, you're talking about something that alerts you or arrests you or immediately gets your attention. And this loud voice sounding like a trumpet, as if a trumpet, said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Now, John has not turned yet. John's back is to the Lord when he hears this voice declaring who he is. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. John may not have turned because he was frightened. John may not have turned because he was absolutely startled. It didn't take but less than a minute for that proclamation to be made. And when John hears this voice, this arresting, alerting voice, this voice like a trumpet, this startling voice, and he hears these these words of the Lord, it says in verse 12 that he then turned to see the voice that spoke to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about a chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, which is the whitest thing John could think of. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. doesn't say they were a flame of fire. They were like a flame of fire, burning and intense. And his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice was the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. 
And out of his mouth went out a two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the shining, like the sun shining, and all its strength, oh, and all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if dead. Exactly how we respond when we enter into the presence of the Lord, right? You ever been in a prayer time with Jesus, and you get a text message, and you stop? And look at your text message before you pick up uh, your prayer time with him. Have you ever um, have you ever been praying about something and then God remembers, reveals something to you that you have to take care of today, that it's really important that you do, and you don't want to forget it, so you make yourself a quick note before you go back to prayer or Bible study or jot it down or worse than that, Lord, hold on a second, and you deal with that issue, send an email out, make a phone call, whatever it is, and then go back to prayer time? One of the most infuriating things, one of my real pet peeves, is when I'm counseling somebody and we're sitting, we're, uh, we're, you know, they're, I'm sitting in my chair, they're sitting on the sofa and they're sharing their situation and I'm trying to help them and, and all of a sudden a text message, ding, ding. Oh, excuse me. I- I'm sorry, where were we? We're not anywhere. I mean, ding, oh, excuse me. They pull the text message back up. It's like how divided our attention is. Have you ever done that with the Lord? Or do you lock yourself into a closet? And when he presents himself to you and you see him in the spirit like he really is, do you fall on your face as if dead because of his glory and his splendor and his majesty? Or have we homogenized him? Does familiarity sometimes breed contempt? That in the beginning we were, we were awestruck by who he was, and we would never, ever, ever voluntarily, intentionally sin against him. And we spent a great amount of time asking him, Lord, what about my life is offensive to you? What about my life grieves you? And he began laying out for him one after another, our habits or our choices or the people we hung around or or the, the things that we did, or what we watched, or listened to, or ate, or read, or whatever, and we crossed those out. Lord, I won't do those anymore. I won't do those anymore. I won't do those anymore. And then one by one, we let those back into our life. One by one, we let the guard down. One by one, it became he became smaller, and our needs became greater. What happened? What happened? Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 the Lord writes his first letter to a loveless church. Now, this was the first church. This was the church in Ephesus. This, was a, this letter deals with the time in history from about A.D. 30 to about the time John is writing this letter at A.D. 100. It is the church that experienced the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the church firsthand that Paul planted. The only difference between the people that were in the church that Paul planted and the people of the church of Ephesus when he writes these first seven verses is the fact that one generation had taken place. Forty years had passed. Jesus was dead. All the disciples were dead. The only one that was still alive that there was one part of the inner circle with Christ was John, who's on the, on the Isle of Patmos. Another generation had taken place, which had lost firsthand knowledge of the fervency of Christ. Paul was dead. Peter was dead. Stephen was dead. Timothy was dead. They were all gone because a generation had passed. Just one generation, 40 years. And in 40 years, this church that 
that knew people who knew people, that knew Christ, had lost their first love. They had forgotten who he was. They had busied themselves, if you really look at this, in serving him rather than worshiping him, being more involved in doing church and ministry than experiencing him. Now look what he said here. So the angel of the church at Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks in the midst of the golden lampstand. That's to let us know that what's saying here is coming from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ because he's identified as that in chapter 1, verse 13 and following. And here's what he says. Now, this is the amazing thing. I want you to compare your ministry, compare what you do for Christ to what this church is doing for Christ. I know your works, your labors, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, or you cannot support evil things. And watch this. It's almost like, as he goes through this, there's just these these attributes that keep rolling out of his mouth. It's like one huge run-on sentence. I know your works, your labor, and your patience, and... You can't, you, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars, and you've persevered and have patience, and you have labored for my name's sake, and you have not become weary. My goodness, who are these people? I mean, this is an absolute sold-out group of believers. They, they stand against evil, both inside the church and outside the church. They've worked, they've toiled, they've had patience, they've had endurance. They have, inside the church, they've tested those who've tried to, to defile the church and kept it pure. I mean, how would we relate our kind of ministry that we have today as individual believers to theirs? Mine comes up short. Work, labor, patience. Cannot bear those who are evil. We allow evil into our lives all the time, but we just kind of sanitize it. They tested the church to keep those out who were, who were said they were somebody who are not and called them liars. They persevered during trials and tribulation with great patience, both within the church and outside of the church. They labored for the cause of Christ, for the name of Christ, and did not become Weary. I mean, who who are these people? So I wanted to I wanted to find out what the words meant. And when it talks about laboring and talks about weary, I mean, I want you to get in your mind somebody who works in a coal mine, or somebody who spent fourteen hours out in the middle of a field in July, and they're coming home and they're drenched and they're exhausted and they're dehydrated, and they all they can do is just collapse for a little while in a chair and take some nourishment and go to bed and hit it again tomorrow because that's the imagery that the Greek is giving us here. These people worked insistently hard for him. A lot harder than many of the church does today. Look what it says here. I know, this is 1492, I know cognitively your works. And the work here means just your, your duty. It's what you're supposed to be doing. It's the result of employment. 
Every one of us have been called into a relationship with Christ, and he's told us things we should do, we need to do, based on the fact that he's called us into a relationship with him. They're required of being a believer. That's pretty much what it's talking about here. I know your works. But you're working to the point that he now calls them your labors. And this means in the Greek to toil to the point of exhaustion. It means the labor which demands the whole strength of a man, everything that I have to the utmost to accomplish the task. It's not like sitting at a desk and getting paid for eight hours and only working six and just kind of taking it easy and checking your emails and playing on Facebook. This means the work is the work of to absolute exhaustion. He's commending this church. This is the kind of believers they are, yet they'd lost and left their first love. I know your works, your labor, and your patience. That means to remain under, to bear up under hostile circumstances. And they're faithful in doing that. They haven't quit. They keep struggling. That you cannot bear, you cannot stand, you cannot support those who are evil. And it talks about those that are bad or worthless or wicked or vicious or harmful or they have a bad heart or bad conduct or bad character. We're not talking about necessarily those people within the church. I mean, the application here is probably the fact that if we can't bear and can't support and can't stand those who are evil, it works the same way for institutions that are evil, for entertainment facilities that are evil, for almost everything that we're involved in. Can't do it. Can't stand. It just grates me. Why? Because it hurts my Lord. And I'm working to the point of exhaustion to help build his kingdom and prepare his goodness Of course I can't support. Of course I can't bear. Of course I can't stand for those elements that destroy that very work. That's what they've done towards the bad. But when it came towards the good and the sanctity and purity of the church, it says that they have tested. This is a hard thing to do. Somebody stands up in the middle of your church and says, hey, I'm an apostle, or I've done this, or God told me this, and all that kind of stuff. And there's, a, there's an element of testing, of looking at fruit and stuff of that nature, and that's what happens here. And you have tested those who say, do firm and proclaim that they're apostles, they're messengers of Christ, they're sent ones. Paul could possibly mean the authoritative position, but they are not. And then to take that bold step and then found them out by examination to be liars. But they have friends. And they have other people who believe them. And now there's turmoil taking place, and now you're suffering, and they didn't care. We're working to the point of exhaustion for the purity of Christ and the purity of his church. And you have persevered. You've borne up under patiently the the onslaught of abuse that comes from that or the, the, the evil of society, and you have patience to endure, to remain under that onslaught, and have labored, and this word means to be fatigued, wore out, weary, and faint. I am just exhausted. I can't take another step. God, you have to inspire me. You have to build me up to do that. And they've done all that for him. Not for the church, not for themselves, Not for work, not for family, not for their nation, not for a cause, not for a belief, 
They've done all of this only for Christ. And in the middle of all this, they have not become weary or they haven't fainted from constant work. Now, I want you to see this because I need you to understand that this is the church Jesus is talking to. And if we had a church full of people like that, in our country, we would literally exalt them to the greatest of all churches. There's no church that is more committed to soul winning and ministry and helping out others and bearing the burden of others than this particular church. It's got a group of people that are ministering to him to the point of sheer exhaustion on top of the fact that they're ministering to their family and they all have jobs and they have responsibilities, but they're so committed to Christ that in their kingdom building, they're exhausted because they're working so hard. Yet it's this church, surprisingly, that Jesus says the most chilling words. Nevertheless, in spite of all you have done, there's something wrong with your motives. Yes, you're accomplishing great things. Yes, what you're doing is good. Yes, that's, that's wonderful. But in spite of all this, I, Jesus, have this against you. That's a... That's a strong word. I don't think I've ever used that word with my children. I've said things like, you know, in spite of all the good things you've done, you still lack this, kind of softer. In spite of all the things that you do good, there's one area of your life that you have a blind spot on, and let me sit and share you that with you. You know, in spite of all the things that you do, there's one area of your life that annoys me. It still just kind of annoys me. So let's, let's talk about it and see if we can work that through. That's not what it says here. I have this against you. I'm contrary to you. I'm in an adversarial relationship with you. That's a very strong word. I have this against you. I've never said that to my kids. I'm against you. I, I, I can't imagine. And that's what the Lord is saying to this incredibly faithful hardworking church. I have this against you. What? What could you possibly have against us? We're working and working and working and working. That you have left, the word means to forsake, quit, abandon, or desert. Doesn't mean that you just said, hey, see you later. I mean, this is a, it's like a, it's like when a husband leaves a wife. It's like when you know, friends separate. It's, it's kind of like how Paul felt when John Mark deserted them and abandoned them and forsook them on the first missionary journey. You have left your first love. And this word first, I was wondering, is this first in priority? Actually, it's first in time. I mean, this particular word talks about your first love, the one that loved you first, the one that you claim to love more than anything. You have left your first love. How is that possible? Now, I can understand the Laodicean church leaving their first love because, you know, we're not hot or cold. We're kind of apathetic. Since you're hot or cold, I vomit you out of my mouth. Well, here's what you need to do. I mean, come on. You know, Jesus is outside the church, knocking on the door, trying to get. I got that. But this church? This church? How, how did that even happen? Because at one time, it appears, the church at Ephesus, in a generation earlier, in the 50s and 60s of the first century, they had a vibrant love relationship with the Lord. But something happened. Something 
happen? Look at two passages here. First Ephesians 1, 15 and 16. Therefore, writing to the very same church, therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, your agape. By the way, when it talks about leaving your first love, it's not filio, it's not friendship, it's not eros, it's not like a physical love. It is agape. You've left your first altruistic love. You've left the highest love. But it says here, a generation earlier, that this church manifested agape love for all the saints, even the ones that were part of that church, even the ones that were planted in other areas, even the missionaries, even the people we don't particularly agree with or like. There was a love that permeated this church. Chapter 3 says this. This is the prayer. That Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in agape, because you are. You've been taught this love. It's, it's the center of your being. It's the, it's the attribute of Christ that you're holding on to more than anything. You may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length, length and depth and height that you will know experientially, gnosko, the love of Christ, the agape of Christ, which passes all understanding, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. What happened? I mean, what happened in that generation? It took place. And what are they supposed to do about it? Verse 5. Remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What does it mean to remember? As I was doing this, I felt the Lord impress me just to stop and and remember what it was like the first couple weeks when I was a new creation in Christ and how everything changed. I mean, I still had the same friends I had before. Most of those friends were lost. Most of those friends were business associates, and I didn't know if they were lost, and I didn't care. And all of a sudden, I remember I was working at a CPA firm in, in uh, Decatur, Georgia, and I remember after I got saved that um, that very next Monday, I walked into work, and I walked in differently. I mean, I walked in, and I felt it felt foreign. It felt all my, all my priorities had been realigned. I mean, in the beginning, my sole goal was to have my name on the, uh, on the, on the door and to have the window office. But when I walked in there, it didn't really matter. And the people would come up to me, people that I'd you know, known and people that we'd gone through tax season together with and people you know, we'd been drinking with and all that kind of stuff. And, hey, Steve, how you doing? And I saw them with different eyes. I mean, they, they weren't just Gloria. It was my age and you know, was hired about the same time I was. Instead, she was, I saw her and my heart was filled with the fact that I used to be like you. And I know what it's like on the other side. And I need this opportunity to, to tell you that life doesn't have to be like it was for us because it's different now. Everything changed. I would sit down and I'd watch the same television shows or I'd try to watch the same television shows that I used to watch, but I can't anymore. It bothered me. It just It hurt me. It's, you know, the stuff all of a sudden, I had no idea there was this much profanity in this particular show or this much sexual innuendos or stuff like that. You know what? what? I, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. What a waste of time here to sit down and, and do this before Facebook. Um, why? why? 
I would go to church. I, I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait to go to church with a bunch of people that were going to be so affirming of the fact that I'm now a new creation in Christ. And now I've joined them and we're family and we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And when I came to church, they really weren't interested. I mean, they had their day in the sun 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, but, but they become like many of us become now, become, become dry. Looking for opportunities to, to share Christ with my neighbors, writing letters to my brother, you know, to tell him about Christ. Same stuff you shared last week about your neighbors. I mean, it was, this is part of the life. It was great. And I started remembering what happened. What went wrong? Was Christ not big enough? Did, did I embrace him more? And, and for a long time, for a long time, I believed that it was just him. You know, I bought into the whole spiritual gifts kind of died at the end of the first century kind of thing. And, it's, and I, you know, I just, maybe it's just him. Maybe it's, maybe it's normal, you know, that you have this just panting kind of relationship for the Lord and you walk into the room and it kind of takes your breath away. But that still happens to me when Karen comes into the room. Sometimes I see her and I'm just overwhelmed by how lucky I am. You know what I mean? So it's got to be different than that. What is it? Then I went to Haiti. Went to Haiti for a couple weeks, three weeks, to do an audit for a hospital down there. And every day they would have a worship service. And these people, I've shared the story with you, these people would come out and they had nothing. They had nothing. And I'm this arrogant, intelligent, CPA, graduate degree gringo. They just want to, let's just, you know, let's do church the way we normally do it. And man, and every time they got together, the Holy Spirit fell in such a way that I realized I was a babe. I didn't know anything. Because that's all they had was Jesus. And I have everything but him. Know what I mean? It's just it's where we live. What happened? I mean, what was it like? Think about it. Think of yourselves when you first got saved. Back then, when you first got saved, if you saw yourself now, would you be the kind of person that person wants to be their mentor? Or would they look at you and go, what happened to you? What happened? I mean, how come, how come you don't want to go? How come you don't want to go knock on doors? How come you don't want to get involved with ministry? How come you're not willing to give more? Than, than, like I'm, how, come, how come, what happened to you? How come you're not leading? How, what happened here? Think about the promises that you made to him. Assuming you did. I know I did. Because there were certain areas in my life that I struggled with, and when I turned them over to him, I swore I'd never pick those back up again. But the problem is, we often do. We make promises, and then we back off on them. We make promises, and they're just it's a little too hard to keep. Plus, the rest of the Christian community thinks we're crazy for doing this. There's no need to be too heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good. You ever heard that? It's right out of the pit of hell. So has your relationship with him cooled over time? Is there something missing? And if it did cool over time, did it happen gradually? Just like a, a, a leak in a rubber raft that you don't even notice until all of a sudden you're sinking? Or did it happen all at once? Was it some major event where God didn't answer your prayer and so therefore you walked away from him? And what do you remember about that time? For most Christians, at least from the people I've talked to in my own experience and, and those I've read about, that it just... Is like the, the frog in a kettle. Do you remember the story? 
But you just turn up the heat, and pretty soon the frog dies, and everyone knows it's happening. There's somehow it just it just kind of goes away. It just kind of, you know, it just you wake up in the morning, and there's other things now that are demanding your attentions more so than him. That we fail to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We we open up little sins in our life or little compromises we refuse to make, and every time we do, our intimacy with him dies a little bit, and then we get so far out and no man's land that we don't know how to get back. And once we find the way back, we refuse. Here's what it says here. It says, the first thing this church needs to do, and the first thing you and I need to do to remove a roadblock to experience revival, is to remember. And the word means here to call to mind, or literally in its tense, it means to keep on remembering. This is something you have to do. It's not something you're going to be driving down the road and God's going to say, bam, remember this. You're going to have to think about it. You have to make it happen. You have to set time apart to remember and then force yourself to keep on remembering about what it was like in the very beginning. Remember, therefore, from where. The word also means why and how. Where or why or how you have fallen. And the word fallen means to fall off or to fall from, to fall away, to fail, to be without effect for your spiritual life, to pretty much be vain, to be void. How did that happen? What happened? To remember, to keep remembering. Do I remember the day that it happened? I don't. I just remember soft decisions that I made. I just remember mistakes that I, that I did, and, and they just seemed okay, and the consequences for those mistakes weren't severe, and they weren't immediate, so I just kind of drifted off in that area. I mean, I was over here in the, in the light, and I didn't want to go over hall here in the darkness, but I just kind of graduated down into the lukewarm area, into the gray area, where I'm neither hot nor cold, where the Lord says is so offensive to him, he wants to vomit us out of his mouth in Revelation chapter 3. How does that happen? Just think, was it a small sin? Just something simple, no big deal. Maybe it was a disobedience to him. Maybe he told you to do something and you said no, and then he quit asking you, so you figured it was okay. And It was just kind of a small sin, and then pretty soon the, the, the intimacy kind of waned, but, but you know you're still saved. There are times that you feel his presence, but how it was in the beginning is okay, and then other people have told you that it was. Or maybe it was a forbidden relationship. Maybe the Lord told you, you can't have a relationship with this guy. You can't date this guy or this girl, and you shouldn't be hanging around these friends. But I get, I, I, I'm so insecure in myself that I need their affirmation, and I want to be there. What am I going to do? Because I like them, but I don't like these Christian guys over here. So, so how does that work? You know, Lord, you'll work it out. I refuse to give up my boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever it is. And then all of a sudden, you're, we're deceived because bad company does corrupt good character. Was it a love of money? This is big in our nation today because all our self-worth, especially as men, is promoted to us on how much we accumulate, how much money that we, that we make. I mean, we do that all the time. Two women get together. Hey, how many kids do you have? Oh, I have four. Really? I got three boys. And they start talking. <laughs> no man's ever asked me how many kids I have. They've asked me what I do for a living. Hey, uh, what do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a, I'm a preacher or a I'm an entrepreneur, I, I do this, or I'm an accountant. Oh, because whenever somebody says that, you know, we state the position in the best way that we can. I'm an uh, industrial engineer for uh, 
some big company. Oh, then meet it. I'm thinking salary. And we, we, we hit net, we hit value with net worth. We always do that. I mean, it's, it's just, it's bred in our culture. So it's a love of money. All of a sudden, I became more interested in making money than I did in having a relationship with the Lord. And I know the verses say that I can't take any of it home with me, and it's a fool who does that. But nevertheless, it defines who I am. It does not. Christ defines who we are. Other things like that are roadblocks. They're deceptions. Well, those are bad things. How about good things? How about I let my family get in the way? Well, no, no, I'm not talking about my brother, my mother, my father, my crazy uncle. I'm talking about my own children. That I'm so paranoid something's going to happen to them, that I'm so protective of them because God is so small and I have got to do this. That I'm so overwhelmed with my family that I have to make every decision Christ-like on how it's going to affect my family. I've known people that are like that. Unfortunately, it's a real temptation for homeschoolers. Or fear, pride, or just being busy. I mean, what was it? What was it? Let me ask you a couple questions. And these are the questions that the Lord asked me. You know, return to the days when Christ was truly your first love. And again, if he is, this is not for you. Pray for those who this message is meant for. You want to experience him with fresh new eyes? It's why I keep asking. On a scale from 1 to 10, where are you spiritually? If you're a 10, you're experiencing him with fresh new eyes. If you're a 10, you've returned to the point where Christ is your first love. A 10 means then closer than you have ever been to the Lord, you personally, you're there now. Anything less than a 10 means that we've stepped back from what we have already experienced. At one time, I was a 10. Maybe my first three weeks is when I got saved. Maybe three weeks ago. Maybe last Tuesday. Maybe I'm a 10 now. And in this following week, I'm so in love with him that I learn more about him and I embrace him more than I'll be another 10 in my own life, but it will elevate. Does that make sense? You want to see him. You want to know him better than you've maybe ever known him before and to bear more of his fruit than you've ever bared before. Do you, do you want to make that happen? Do you know how it's done? Do you know what's required? Everything in your spiritual life requires something of us. God does all the heavy lifting. God pays all the penalties for our sins by butchering his own son. But nevertheless, the faith he gives us, we have to appropriate in our lives. True? And it's a free gift of salvation. It's free because it doesn't cost you anything. It's free because you can't earn it. But it's not free in the fact that it doesn't cost something. Because what it does cost is you, you. God never says he makes us better when he saves us. He says he puts us to death and he raises us up to a newness of life. It costs you, you. It's a a divine transaction. All that I am for all that he is. What a great deal. When it comes to sanctification, he gives me the Holy Spirit. He gives me the spirit of wisdom, empowerment, regeneration, and sanctification. It's all found in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30. He gives me the, the power and the promise to say that I'll never be tempted beyond my ability and the Holy Spirit to be able to, to move beyond that. He gives me spiritual armor that's divinely powerful, the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith. He gives me everything I need to live a successful life in Him. Yet He expects me to put it on. 
He expects me to lay myself down as a living sacrifice. He expects me to put on the mind of Christ. There's a, there's a requirement that comes from us. And it's the same thing here. Revelation 5b. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, I have, Lord, and I'm sick about it. Then repent. Repent and do. Repent and do. Well, do what? The first works. Do you notice that? Repent and do the first works. Don't go foraging out on something brand new. Do what you know works. It's kind of like when, when somebody is lost. I don't know where I'm at. I'm lost. Well, <laughs> go back the way you came until you find something that looks familiar and do what you used to do. And once you do what you used to do to establish your position of what it used to be when you were very close to the Lord and had these defining moments, then once your spiritual life is in tune to him, he will tell you what new to do. Make sense? Repent and do the first works. Repent and obey. Repent and do it. It doesn't work either other, any other way. Repentance and obedience are, are nestled together. I mean, we know that with our kids. We know that, you know, if you're an employer, hey, um, I told you not to stack these boxes over here because when you stack them three high, the top, the bottom was going to get crushed. Do you remember me telling you that? I do. Listen, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be able to, to keep you on if you keep making this mistake. I'm, I'm really sorry. I won't make that mistake again. You know, will you, will you forgive me and give me another chance? Absolutely. You have repented. Now there's obedience involved. If, if two hours later I see and you stack three boxes on top of it and the bottom was crushed again, your repentance meant nothing. It was just words. Repentance is true when it's followed up with actions. You cannot have true repentance without true obedience. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things I tell you to do? Repent and do the first works. The word repenting means, and listen very carefully here, I'm drawing this to close. Repenting is denoting a change of place or condition, a change of, of your condition to change the mind or to relent. It involves regret, sorrow, accompanied by a true change of heart towards God. When is the last time that you asked the Lord to forgive you of sins and it brought you to the point of deep sorrow? Isn't most of the time we kind of do this? Hey, Lord, uh, listen, forgive me for my sins today. Uh, forgive me, forgive me for losing my temper with my wife and the words that I said, or forgive me for, you know, doing this or doing that. And, and we okay? And then I claim the promise of 1 John 1, 9, and then I'm forgiven, and I move on down the road. When is the last time that true repentance was the point that it broke your heart? That I did something. Well, again, I've seen this in counseling so many times, where a husband has offended a wife so bad, so bad that her heart is closed, that she's done. I had a counseling session one time where the husband wanted to build a relationship back, but there was no trust there. And I asked her, I said, because I'm a numbers guy, I asked her, how much trust do you have in your heart right now for him? And she said, less than 1%. Less than 1%. And he was broken. 
broken. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I've done that. And there was sorrow and there was wailing and there was, there was deep guttural regret for the sins that he had done because he saw the consequences of those. When is the last time when the church, when we as a group, or maybe you individually, and again, if I'm not speaking to you, pray for others, that when you repent, it brings deep sorrow because you understand the magnitude of that sin. Lord, I will never, never, never do that again. Never. Repent and then command to do the works at the first. To remember from the height of where I was and how far I've fallen. If, uh, if, again, if I were to start with Karen, and I'm not. Karen, where are you at spiritually right now? I'm, I'm, I'm about an eight. That's great. That's only 20% lower than, than where you at one time were in your life way back in the past. Where you at, Mo? I'm a nine. Where you at, a die? Well, I'm a six. You know, some people, I'm like a two. You know, really? Remember the heights, what you fall. Remember what you used to do. Remember the spiritual fruit that you bore. And go back and do the things we did in the first. Or else, he says, I will come to you quickly. This is a scary verse. And remove your lampstand from its place, and her mouth all dropped open, and then he drove the point home again, unless you repent. It appears that there's an apparent end to God's patience, even with his children. And I've, I've, I've seen pastors, the people that used to be pastors, that started out well and, and got sidetracked, and, and God still loves them, and they still have a place in heaven for them, but as far as the ministry position they had, that's done. That's over. Unless they repent. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance. Last week we talked about Jonathan Edwards' 70 resolutions. And we talked about the fact what the word resolution means or what it means to be resolute. It means to be firmly determined to do something. To make a determined decision and to be unwavering on that decision. I, uh, I showed you Jonathan Edwards and I talked about his 70 resolutions and I gave them to you, and I asked you this week if you would consider those resolutions and if you would make some resolutions for your own life, and if you did, if you would give me a call or shoot me an email or something of that nature to let me know that, you know, I, I've looked at those resolutions and I, and I understand those resolutions, and so, um, you know, th- this is... This is what I've decided, at least today, at least this week, that I'm going to serve the Lord or the resolution that I've made from here on out. And so what I want to do for the last couple minutes here is I want to see if anybody would like to share their resolution, just maybe one that they made, to, uh, to be something that's unwavering about when it comes to your relationship with the Lord. And I'm going to ask Karen because... I do know that uh, uh, some of the things that she was struggling with this week. Would you like to share? 